Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today's guest is somebody who I've known. My God, David, I was trying to figure this out. I think it's 15 years now and someone who I haven't seen in a couple of years. So it's really fun to see him. David Russell, Chief Marketing Officer of Chesterton's. Welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Michael. It's um, It was a surprise and an absolute pleasure when you asked me to be part of your uh, podcast. I've I've been a constant stalker of it, and um, <laughs> I'm proud to be on it. So thank you, and and I'm well to answer your question. Oh my goodness gracious! It's been I think it's been about two years, hasn't it, since we've seen each? Probably a little bit more actually. Once you start adding COVID time in, I think so. It's it, feel, it feels like more than two years because of COVID, but uh, yeah. probably about two years. Yes. You know, just off camera, we were just talking about your lovely daughter, and uh, I can't believe that she's 18, because in my mind, she's frozen at age 10, which yeah. is really when we were hanging out and working together. So it's insane that she just went to prom. Yeah, it's more insane when you see the dresses that her and her friends are wear wearing and all the boys are around them. But uh, <laughs> hey, this is when your sharp shooting skills come in. <laughs> So, David, you have had such an amazing career in a lot of different sectors, some really interrelated. But for the sake of the audience, which is now, you know what's so amazing? You and I spent a lot of time when I lived in London and we both worked for Sotheby's and things like that. But this podcast has now sort of gained its own audience and we're now in over 70 countries. So for those people that are outside of the UK and don't know who David Russell is, can you just give a little bit of your background for our audience, please? Yeah, for sure, Michael. So um, I guess my, my story starts where initially I had the boyhood dream of becoming a chef. So that's really where it started for me. I wanted to be a chef, but um, I guess I quite quickly realized that being a chef, you've got to work very bad hours. You get very low pay. So I realized that maybe that wasn't for me because I'm quite commercial. So I kind of moved into the world of hotels. Um, so that's what I did at university. I studied hotels and business. Um, but again, being quite selfish, um, I wanted to go and work in America for a year. So I worked in Michigan, uh, which is where I met my good lady wife of 26 years. And, and probably at that point in time, I realized that branding was important because I have a very good English brand. and My wife liked Englishness. And everyone working in that hotel like Englishness. So I really played that up. So I kind of realized that um, maybe I'm quite good at sales and marketing because um, it's all about branding. And, and then I was inspired. So my first job was in a hotel company, which focused on theater and London and concerts. And wow. my mentor there was a guy called Ray Jones. And he's the most inspirational person I've kind of ever met. And he intrigued me. So I kind of wanted to follow him. And then ever since then, I've been passionate about brands, passionate about inspiring people like your good self. And uh, yeah, it's been, been a journey. It has been fun. And don't worry, I am not going to give your secret away that you're actually from New Jersey. And this is a put on <laughs> accent. I will not tell anyone. Don't you worry about that. My New Jersey accent. Yeah. <laughs> You've tried that in the past and it hasn't gone well for you. I have, yeah. I, I wouldn't be a great actor, that's for sure. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about, you know, hospitality. You spent a great deal of time there over a decade. And then you came into the real estate world. 
So obviously with hospitality, you dealt a lot with customer service, but it's a different sector. So tell me one thing which you think is very similar in that world of hospitality to real estate. And then one thing which you think is vastly different. Yeah, good question. Um, it's weird, isn't it? A lot of people I work with in the world of real estate also have a big connection back to hotels. Um, so there's definitely a lot of uh, crossover. And, and as you said, it's, it's really all about service at the end of the day, isn't it? You think hotels, it's all about passion, the concierge-like service, attention to detail, uh, thinking about what the customer wants before being thought about it themselves. That's all about hospitality. And it's really all about real estate, isn't it? It's about understanding where people are in their life, what they might want to do next, taking away the stress. So all the technology in the world, all the branding, everything, it's still about people. And I think that's where hotels and real estate is the same. Um, where it's maybe different is... I guess in the world of hotels and, and holidays, ultimately, if you get an amazing bed, which is the most perfect bed and pillow you've ever had, if the shower is strong, and if you can go for an amazing meal down in the restaurant and you get a good drink, your experience is quite good. So it's a product. I think right. in the world of real estate, my view is you kind of have to, you have to tell tell stories and paint pictures of the dream. It's about the family experiences being in the dining room overlooking the, the back garden. So it's, it's maybe less about the product in the world of real estate. It's about helping customers understand what their life might look like and how they can achieve that life in a, in efficient and desirable way. Um, that's possibly what I would say. I actually love that. It's really the idea of storytelling, right? It's the idea of how can I envision my life in this particular environment? And yeah. so I, I, it, it's what we sell. We sell a lifestyle. We don't sell real estate. Yeah, right? and I agree. And it's kind of like, I mean, in the world of where I work at Chesterton's, and I know at Sotheby's where we both worked, we also had the concept of people collecting lifestyles, you know, for second yes. homes, for third homes. They want the ski place, they want the golf place. And each one of them is a slightly different, it's kind of a long-term holiday to some extent. It's yep. something, how do they look at it? And it actually fills a different need in their life. And when you start looking at their life in totality, these are different elements of what fills their life. And that's yep. what we are delivering, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a fun place to be, isn't it? Absolutely. So talk to me about branding. Yeah, you and I first came from a brand that's almost 300 years old, right? You're now with a very established brand in the UK. Um, yep. But an agent who really is looking to brand themselves, which a lot of them are doing. So they look at a brand to really reach, in some cases, a global audience. But then they themselves want to be that local brand that then has a global reach through whatever association they're with. Yeah. So talk to me about how an agent would go about creating a brand of themselves. Yeah, um, I'm definitely a brand guy. And I just think back to any job that I've taken. It's it's often been the brand which has been one of the deciding factors. Um, yeah. you know, I like to go to a party I like to mention the name of the brand 
and I like people to kind of instantly get, oh, he works at this company. And that for me selfishly works quite well. Um, but I also think from an agent's perspective, it's about kind of, it's about doing your homework. Um, I think it's trying to understand what brands you're associated with. You obviously have the brand, which is your company. And what does that stand for? But I do think it's important to build your own personal brand alongside it, not to compete, um, but to actually kind of um, to even make it better. Um, yeah. And I guess in my experience, um, I like the rule of three. There's, there's many things that we could do, but, but less is more. So when you're defining what your own personal brand is, you know, what do you want to tell the world about you, David Russell, or you, Michael Valdez, would bring to the table? Is it really clear? Um, and I see a lot of people, especially, you know, in, in my experience, where people are a jacks of all trade and master of none. And I think nowadays it's actually good to specialize so you become the expert at something. I don't think people expect you to be the expert at everything, but I think people expect you to be essential. So, so be a brand which is essential in the business of real estate, as opposed to just something which is, is nice. And, and ultimately, um, people like people. So, you know, make the brand authentic. Don't be like this stuck up, stuffy, elitist type of brand. I'm buying a home, a second home in uh, the UK at the moment, and the process of buying real estate in the UK maybe isn't as advanced as in the States. So, you know, it's something we constantly want to get better at. So be, be proactive, you know, take the next step on behalf of your customer. And for me, the most important thing is advise me, tell me what you think. Right. I don't know. I know that I like the bathroom, but tell me the best way for me to get it. Tell me my options instead of just kind of opening the door and letting me work it all out myself. If I was building a brand and we always are, I'd probably be looking at those elements to, to build my brand. You know, it's really interesting. Um, so Glenn Sanford, the founder of EXP, he says, I will pay top dollar for a specialist, but not pay a penny for a generalist. Yeah. And it is so true. Because the thing is, so the question that I always sort of say to someone who's, who starts sort of asking about building a brand is, why you? Which is exactly what you're saying. There are literally millions of estate agents around the world. And so when somebody is looking for a primary home, a secondary tertiary home, they want to, they can find anything online now. Right now, the idea of information is a level playing field. They don't need an estate agent to find a property. We can find a property anywhere in the world on the internet. Yes. What you do need is the person that's there telling you what the value is on that. The things that we cannot get on the internet. Yeah, absolutely, Micah. And, and to some extent, um, in our modern world, my brand might simply be, I know how to get things done. So I don't need to be the expert in anything, perhaps, other than bringing all the pieces of the pie together because I know, like you know, lots of people are good at certain things. If I can harness all that together to make the customer experience amazing, then, then that's my brand. So it, yeah. I think it can be anything, but make it specific what you truly are trying to, to do. 
So I think the key word is always trying to be an advisor. Yeah. Right. It's not the idea of being an agent or broker. It is that's transactional. What you're trying to achieve is to be that trusted advisor that becomes generational where you're dealing with the parents and the children and the next generation, because that's what you do in building a career. Yeah, absolutely. right. Yeah. Yeah. So you and I spent, as we said, quite a lot of years, I think it's been 15 years that we worked together at Sotheby's and really closely when I lived in London for several years. And, um, and so somebody who's coming in and wanting to look at an international um, uh, perspective, building their business globally. So from your perspective, sitting in the UK, if somebody is looking to uh, attract a US buyer or vice versa, how would you suggest someone goes into building their brand on a global scale? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Michael, um, we started off before working together for 10 years and now you said 15. So I feel well, like- because I started at 2005, you were already there. <laughs> So, I'm already feeling old with my daughter. Now I'm feeling more <laughs> aged. No, I said Phoebe was frozen in time for me 10 years ago, but we worked together for 15. I started in 2005. You were yeah, already there. I was actually, yeah. Ah. But, and I, I kind of feel a little bit um, in the shadow of Mr. International, Michael Valdez. You know, I we both travel a lot. Um, I think on my travel app, I've been to 68 different countries or territories, but I think on my app, it says it's something like 268. So it's still a long way to go. That's right. But, I did hit what, triple digits. <laughs> you've got triple digits. But what I would say, and what you might find too, is, is just by saying, I want to target an international clientele, it's too big. Yeah. Let's get specific. So what does international mean? You know, which, which markets are you really looking to target? Because everyone is different. Everyone speaks a different dialect, different language. You know, it's a complicated world out there. So my first advice would be, be specific in terms of where you think or where you want to target and then get like uber local, you know, know the music, know the taste, know the smells of the place where you're looking to build your relationship with. Because when you do that, you then get into the serious stuff is, understand the language very very important english is the the global language but business is done in the local language where possible understand the culture Um, if you negotiate with a person in one part of the world the way they will communicate with you their negotiation tactics their style their expectations will be so different Mm -hmm. so do your homework try to kind of pinpoint the areas you want to focus on. And then I kind of have this phrase, I say kind of go all in. Don't just expect the business to come to you. You know, network, go and make friends. Pick the phone up to these people. They want to hear from you. Um, Make two-way relationships. It's not just about what you can do for for me. It's it's vice versa. Um, It's a bit like dating, isn't it? You've got to understand what the other player once instead of just send me more buyers send me more clients um and nowadays you know there's many different ways to to work together there's there's various different marketing opportunities where you can send updates market knowledge there's social media we can share things but you know i know we've probably got some joint friends down in florida who 
get on a plane and they will go and travel and spend time in the other party's office. It's fantastic to do it just from a lifestyle, but it makes a big difference. So to say I want to target an international clientele is definitely the right statement. The way you do it is by kind of going all in on doing it properly and not just, well, it's a big world out there. I'm going to wait for them to come to me. Um, I actually love a lot of what you just said. Um, first of all, I hope you haven't been on a date in 26 years, but I it's sort of like, we'll just take it from the fact that it's like dating. Um, my daughter, I've had a daddy daughter date a few times. Okay, that counts. <laughs> Um, but the idea of language, I love that. But it's also what's unspoken, isn't it? When you actually are Absolutely. with someone and you're dealing with culture. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, it's the nuances when you're negotiating with someone from Asia, for example, and there's a contract and you know that certain numbers are really lucky for them and, 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 and the inverse, right? If you have an offer that ends in an eight, you probably will have a deal. If you have a number that ends in a four, you'll probably never hear from them again. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's also being being proud of yourself as well. So you yeah. bring a lot of interest to them. So I always remember I went to um, an event once and I was being hosted and they were doing an amazing job and they were being really nice to me. But they took me to like an English restaurant. I won't say where, but it was in a different part of the world. And I had um, shepherd's pie and oh, a God. pint of warm beer. <laughs> and and I loved the fact that they took the effort to do it, but I didn't need it. I would have much preferred them to to kind of show me the local culture. That's right. Um, yeah. But I think sometimes you can overthink these things. Um, if I have you in my home, I want to show you the best of my home because I think that's what you want. And I don't really mind if you're, you know, you don't get it or your American culture maybe doesn't automatically fit. That's part of a journey, isn't it? So, so don't, you know, don't try to change too much would be my advice. Be proud of your heritage and then the other partners should also seek that out too. Absolutely. And come on, it's sort of like I lived in London enough. I'm sort of English enough. I you're still say English rubbish. I am, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly know more restaurants than me. <laughs> So, David Russell, what's the greatest lesson you've learned in your career thus far? Well, <laughs> um, probably, probably, and it's taken me a long time to get to this point. Um, it's actually, it's okay to make mistakes would be my biggest lesson. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a wannabe artist. Obviously, we both worked at Sotheby's, which is surrounded in beautiful art. Yeah. But I remember... One of my most therapeutic times, usually when I was at university after when I had a hangover, was I'd watch a TV show um, called The Joy of Painting. And it was an American artist called Bob Ross, big fuzzy haired guy. And he was the most calming guy ever. And he would do live paintings. And whenever he made a mistake on his painting, he would basically just say, we don't make mistakes. We make happy little mistakes. And he makes them into something better. So... So probably, um, you know, I could be very grand and say you've got to keep moving and keep exploring and all those things. But whilst doing that, it's OK to make happy mistakes. Don't make shockers. because That's bad. <laughs> but, but, you know, the little ones are OK. You know, I think that you sort of like progress 
in your career. And you get to a point where that becomes a great level of freedom. Yeah. For actually be able to say that. Because you've got the skill sets, you've already proven yourself, you know, there's nothing left to prove, right? And so it's sort of like, yeah, well, that didn't work. It's sort of like moving on. And and so it's liberating. I think so. And it, it's a bit of confidence, isn't it? It's a bit of yeah. self-confidence, but it's also a bit of the real world. You know, we it's complicated times. If we always just did what worked, we'll never find new things. And, you know, much okay. wiser people have said those things to me. Um, but that would be what I would, I would probably say. Yep. It, I love that. That's great. So now tell me about your new company where you're the chief marketing officer of Chesterton's, a wonderful firm in the United Kingdom. Tell me a little bit about that. Congratulations, yeah. by the way, on that. Thank you. Thank you. I've been there uh, a year and a half now. Time flies. It's, uh, I love that. <laughs> it's, it's maybe a risky time to change jobs at the start of a, a global pandemic. But I um, did. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> but, um, but I'm loving it, I have to say. And um, I guess it got to the point where... I think you you spend time and you have lots of ideas and um, you see opportunities come and go. Um, And it got to the point where it was kind of time to put my neck on the line and to actually put myself into a position where I did make the big decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And and luckily for me, um, Chesterton's is similar, but not the same as the companies I've worked with. So it wasn't a, I wasn't jumping off at the deep end. There was definitely a, a similarity. Um, yeah. So the, so the Chesterton's brand, in case people don't know, it's um, it's a luxury real estate brand, primarily based in London, with 31 company-owned offices. We also own offices across the Middle East. Uh, we started up in 1805. I wasn't around oh. then, even though I <laughs> like it sometimes. And um, we're you know we're trying to grow the brand like so many brands are doing. We're trying to take it on the road and grow it globally. And um, it's, it's good that many people are trying to do it because it means that, you know, the more do it, hopefully the better the, um, the better yeah, it is for it everybody. Is. Yeah. Um, our vision is to, to reinvent the way real estate is transacted. Um, easier to say than to do. So whenever I'm working with my marketing team, if we're putting something together, I always question anything we do. Does it go towards that vision? Maybe it doesn't crack it on day one, but are we still on the right path? And then we kind of have a little benchmark and check on that. Um, and then ultimately, my role at, at Chesterton's is, you know, I, I pull all my learnings together. I'm testing myself. And I guess I've realized I don't need to know everything, but I need to know the players that do. So I can then pull them together and, and bring the team along with me because nobody's going to Nobody's going to buy my product or buy my service just on a conversation with me. Ultimately, it is it is the team. Um, so my my journey at Chesterton's has probably taught me that, and um, I'm loving it. It's great. It's, it's I love well. that. You look very happy, which is really nice to see. And <laughs> there's a uh, I don't know. There's a sense of uh, of accomplishment and fulfillment, which is really really quite nice. And you know, I think in, in, in certain ways, I've stepped into that too with my new journey. And it's been, it's just nice to sort of see an old friend at that yeah. same plateau. So it's nice. And, it's lovely, uh, isn't it? And, um, yeah. you know, I, I remember we spent some time in 
golf courses and yeah. you know it's nice when people you work with do well and you see how it all kind of transpires and I just look forward to when we have the best reunion party in the world. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's good. Now that the world is starting to open up again, this is going to be fun. I love it. Now, you are also a high-performance driver, and there's a lot of um, concentration, hopefully, and skill to do that effectively. So talk to me about what focus means to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess my my guilty pleasure or my midlife crisis is is <laughs> when I didn't want to be a chef, I wanted to be a Formula One racing driver. Because that's what you do, actually. You go from being a chef to a Formula One driver. It makes perfect (laughs) sense. But I never really had the time or the money to to do it. So um, luckily, your circumstances change. And I did get an opportunity to go on. It's called um, the Caterham Racing Academy. So they basically, um, they take you at the very lowest level. And back then, they also had a Formula One racing team. And you could basically progress. Um, And it was life-changing for me um, in that... It started off with, I had to build my own race car. So I physically got it delivered to my house and I had friends come around and we basically built it together. And I know nothing about cars. So this was like the best boy project ever, but, but it truly was focused because they give you a big massive manual, which you've got to do in order. And you know, but if you don't do it correctly, when you go to drive it for the first time on a racetrack going into that first corner, the wheel might fall off. <laughs> so, so that focuses your mind quite quickly. <laughs> but, but then what they do is you then, um, you know, everyone can drive fast. Everyone can get a fast car and drive it, but not everybody can race a car. So again, you then learn the technique of racing something. So it's about, not just about going fast, it's about how you approach a corner, or how you look mm. at the track or how you focus on the weather conditions. It's about precision. Um, it's about teamwork. So all of the elements in racing, I use endlessly and I bore all my colleagues with work analogies because you've got to plan ahead. Um, it's really scary. So when you're on that kind of start line before the lights are about to go out you're so full of adrenaline but it it's exciting um, yeah. which I think is the same when you have that first deal which is about to close you've got to plan ahead you've got to understand what's going to go on you've got to bring your team with you you can't look behind you because that's where the competition is that's so right. so that full experience for me was amazing um but it, it lets me focus by bringing things down into pieces. I can't build the car in one afternoon. I've got to do it in stages. I can't win the race on the first lap. I've got to get off the line first. I've got to focus on how I take that first bend to make sure I've got the best chance to succeed when I start the second lap. So I could go on for this forever, Michael. I'm sure you'll love this analogy. Are you kidding? I'm going to start stealing some of this stuff. This is great. I'll, I'll better switch up, switch off now, else I'll be in trouble for, um, for over-egging the race driver. <laughs> now, tell me this. How long did it take you to build a race car? It took me um, not as long as you think, actually. It probably took me um, a winter. So I basically, I think I got it delivered in October, and then it was a true team effort. All the local people in the village came and helped me out with different things. That's and amazing. we had it done by March, 
and I had my first race ever in April. And it is scary when you go to that corner, hit the brake thinking, did I, did I fit that correctly? I can't remember if I did that screw or not. <laughs> now, I want to actually delve into this a bit more because, you know, there's a sense of community that's there. You yeah. said everyone came in your village to help you build this. You had yeah. a singular goal in mind. But when you go into that first race, it's just you sitting in that seat. But the community is behind you. And I think Absolutely. that there's a beautiful sort of thing there because when you start talking about that agent coming in, they're there by themselves, yeah. but they have a whole community behind them. Definitely. And they're all rooting for you and want you to succeed as well. So exactly that, Michael. I see you're kind of going down my line of analogies too, which is which is good. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking this. I'm telling you, I'm taking this. <laughs> Now, let's go back to your first career of being a chef. And, you know, obviously that also takes great skill. And you bring all of these different ingredients and elements together to yeah. create something hopefully wonderful and magical, right? Um, but it's also a trial and error and you're bringing all of this. But in the analogy of now bringing a lot of different elements with those people that are part of your organization, how do you motivate others? Yeah. Um, now, I must, I must be honest with you, Michael. I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I actually <laughs> thought I about ask, it a bit. I did ask my team to give me some feedback and uh, what they thought as well. And the, the general consensus was it's actually it's all about the ingredients, as you said, but every ingredient is very different. And it's about appreciating the subtleties of those ingredients um, and making sure that even in your team, everyone's different. Everyone's in a slightly different stage. Everyone's going to bring different things to the table. And then it's about making sure that you don't overcomplicate. Some of the best dishes I ever make are one ingredient. It's just a great steak or it's just a great kind of set of vegetables. Um, Come so on, I can do that. You can do that one. I know you can do that one. <laughs> But it's about, you know, you have all these amazing ingredients, but if you throw too many of them together, it gets too complicated. So my, my nana, God rest her soul, she died at 102 or 103. Wow. And one of her phrases was, everything in moderation, including moderation, i.e., you know, you don't need to throw everything at it, but sometimes it, it's good to do it. Sometimes you can have a bit of fun and just throw everything in and see what ends up, you know, don't overthink it. So in life, I try and think of this, everything in moderation, including moderation. And I say that to my team, you know, don't overdo it, get it done, get it out the door, but sometimes don't hold back, go all in. And then another one of my wise words from my, from my Nana was, um, she used to always cook vegetables in a pressure cooker. And she would always tell me that, Vegetables cooked in a pressure cooker are always best, but sometimes you do need to let the steam off now and again, else it doesn't work. So again, as I motivate my team, I hope that I put them in a pressure cooker. I hope that I put them under pressure to deliver and they want to, but it's so important sometimes to just take a step back, have a bit of fun, let the steam off, relax a little bit. So it's kind of finding that perfect balance. And 
you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near there yet, but a combination of my Nana, lots of ingredients and a pressure cooker, I'll, that's what I'll use to motivate my team. I love this. Nana's are always best for the advice. And thank you for giving me the title of this podcast now. Everything in moderation, <laughs> including moderation. This is good. <laughs> so my final question for you, David, is yep. in your book of life, what's this chapter called? Oh, now that, that's probably the hardest question, Michael. And um, this is I why guess, <laughs> I guess what I would probably go with is I would go back to my my racing um, and in England, we had a very famous Formula One, I guess it's the same as your IndyCar racing, Formula One uh, commentator called Murray Walker. And basically whatever would happen is he would start the race, the cars would be all ready to go. There'd be so much excitement. And when the lights went out, he would shout like, go, go, go. And then that would be the start of the most amazing race, but you had to go. And I think where I am now, it's, you spend a lot of time practicing, a lot of time kind of learning, a lot of time thinking. Um, yeah. But now I'm at a stage where I kind of just want to go, go, go. I want to do better at work. I want to send my daughter off to university. Things are things are happening. Um, so I, I guess that's my phase. It's now time to perform and to go, go, go. That will be my chapter. And then my next chapter, I hope it doesn't mean he crashed at the first corner. <laughs> The next chapter will be, I hope I put the screw into the wheel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Oh, my God. Well, David, thank you so much, my friend. It was so much fun to reconnect with you. And just to see you, it is, it, it, it's really wonderful to just sort of see you in this space in life. You look so happy. It's another phase where your daughter is now grown. You're, you're just really... It's, it's, it's so good. It's just so good to see you at this phase in life. And I'm so glad we reconnected and thank you for so much for being on the show. No, thank you, Michael. And again, thank you to you as well. I mean, I said at the beginning, people who inspire are important. Uh, you're certainly one of those people in my, uh, in my book of life. So again, I thank you for that too. And um, it's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, David. And thank you for all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez.